I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Hello, hello. How are you, Ben? I am decent, Agnes. How are you? I'm all right, thank things? you. I've got a really rumbly stomach. I'm so sorry. Um, so enjoy <laughs> yes, that, listeners. That is, a, that is a problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Apologies. You've been uh, buried in the podcast studio. I've been buried in the studio. I, I cannot tell you how, how many hours I've spent in here in the last week. We are just... Yeah, I mean, I love the softness of the walls, yeah. the uh, the dimness of the lighting. But we now have lights that don't make a noise. That is true. Yeah, they no longer make a noise. Yeah, thank you, um, Robin. Yeah, and... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's but been an experience, but you've it been will cheating be producing on good things. You've I been cheating on undercurrents. I wouldn't describe it as cheating on undercurrents. I would describe it as he's, broadening the podcast family at Chatham House. He's cheating on undercurrents. Yes, <laughs> of course, which is so exciting. I so stay loyal to the format, but what we've also done is we're we're kicking off a couple of new series, which I think are going to be really exciting. Something a bit different mm-hmm. to undercurrents. Undercurrents will still carry on, obviously. It's going to be, like, my main thing. But we've got two two really exciting new series, and actually you're going to be hearing from the hosts of one of them at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for that. They're, they're very nice. Uh, and that is going to be Independent Thinking, which is our weekly events podcast. Because I don't know if you know, but if, if you do not know, Chatham House runs over 300 events a year mm-hmm. almost daily events yeah and um a lot of exciting people come through the really doors. exciting people coming through the doors and so we've decided now is the time to launch a podcast where we bring you our pick of the week the Excellent. best the best event of a week comes out have a listen brilliant in full in full so with questions completely at the unabridged end. Excellent. Yeah. Oh my God, excellent. <laughs> uh, look at this. Openness, Openness transparency. Absolutely. Uh, and what's the other one? And the other one is called The Climate Briefing, Okay. which is a podcast from our Energy, Environment and Resources programme, uh-huh. which is basically a, it's a monthly podcast where we're delving into all of the different aspects of climate change and the climate agenda in the run-up to COP26, which is the big UN climate conference, which is happening in Glasgow this year. Right, okay. And it's it's a big deal this year because it's supposed to be the one where everyone updates their commitments right. from Paris. So the Paris Agreement, 2015, it's been five years and now everyone's got to come to the table and say how they're going to do better and commit to different, to different action. And when is that? So that's in November. Okay, so exciting. We're going to be doing so a monthly, monthly podcast up till then, and we've got um, some really interesting speakers, again, basically from events that we're hosting here in London around yeah. it. So we're kicking off. First episode will be out about a week or so after you hear this, listeners, and it will be on the Chatham House website and wherever you get your podcasts. And it will basically it will look at what happened at the previous climate conference and have a look towards what we should be trying to achieve with the next one. And it includes the UK's lead climate negotiator, Archie Young, who's going to be sort of leading our delegation at the conference. So pretty big, big hitter to start off with, Absolutely. isn't it, really? The, the only, guy. The only, way is, the only way is up. Brilliant. Oh, well, that yeah. sounds really exciting. I can't wait to listen, even if you're cheating oh, on me. Oh, thanks, mate. So, we'll um, get, so we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we've got one, <laughs> one downloader, one subscriber, as it were. But I'm not going to talk about other podcasts any longer on this episode because we've got an absolutely cracking 
episode for you. We do. Who did you speak to this week? Yes, so I spoke to Mira Sabaratnam, who is from SOAS. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's a lecturer of international relations. And I also spoke to Tristram Hunt, who is the director of the Victorian Albert Museum and was previously the Labour MP for Stoke-on-Trent. And actually joining me for that that interview was our colleague Amrit Swali from the events team because she helped to put together the event that both of these guys were speaking at brilliant which was all about understanding decolonization as a as a thing uh, people may be familiar with the term but it, i think too often people assume it's something that happens at universities mm. and actually it's something that should be happening throughout society so yeah especially linked with the art world as well because it's the classic elgin marbles question isn't it exactly and yeah. I, was, I was actually in athens last week and uh, I went to the Acropolis Museum yeah. where at the, on the top floor they've got a space for the Elgin marbles. It's like this brand spanking new museum, top of the range, and there's just a room up there that says, this is where the Elgin marbles are going to be, which are, if people don't know, the statues from uh, the front of the Parthenon in Athens, which were sold, in inverted commas, to uh, Lord Elgin yep. um, in the 1800s by... Athens Ottoman rulers and they have been in the British Museum ever since. Uh, well, no, there was a brief period where they were actually in uh, Aldwych Tube Station ah, during nice. the Second World War. Knowledge. Uh, that's where uh, most of the British Museum was put. Really? Yeah. I, um, I have done a tour of Aldwych Tube Station because it's shut and I would thoroughly recommend it. It's ah, amazing. So, wow. yeah, they stored a lot of things down there. Sorry, okay. brief tube aside. Cool, um, <laughs> yeah. Tube knowledge. And, you know... And should we should we be giving them back basically? Yeah, yeah. who has because the argument was always you can't be trusted to look after them. Exactly. Um, but then we do things like plonk a Cleopatra's needle on the embankment. You just think, is that us looking after that hugely well? I don't yes, know. Shouldn't yeah. it be inside? It's all pretty sort of culturally <laughs> superior kind of weird chauvinism, isn't it? Covered in, you know, bird droppings, and you know, it's just I don't know. Anyway, that not, sounds really interesting. So that was an interesting conversation. But who did you speak to? I spoke to Dr Yu Jia, also known as Cherry, who is a senior research fellow on China at the Asia-Pacific programme here at Chatham House. Friend of the pod. Friend of the podcast. You would have heard her dulcet tones before about how China's coping, really, with um, coronavirus. So of course. not from a global health perspective, but from an economic perspective. Um, it's a big year for China next year. It's the anniversary of the party. How how they're sort of coping and how it, it might affect them economically and their sort of global standing. Mm. Um, and she was very interesting. Uh, as a, she told a heartbreaking story at the end. And yeah, and as ever, she's a pro. It's really interesting. Happy day as well. Let's have a listen. Okay, so now I'm uh, delighted to be joined by three people. This hardly ever happens. We never have this many people in the media studio. But we're here today to talk about the idea of decolonisation. So with me, I have Dr Mira Sabaratnam, who is a senior lecturer in international relations at the School of Oriental and African Studies here in London. And also Dr Tristram Hunt, who is the director of the Victorian Albert Museum. And also in the studio with me today, I have Amrit Swali, who is my colleague from Chatham House, who works on the events team. And the reason that we're all together is that today at lunchtime, we had an event um, here at Chatham House uh, titled Understanding Decolonisation in the 21st Century, uh, which you can watch a 
video of on the website now. And yeah, which was a really fascinating discussion. But I just wanted to sort of pick up on some of the things that we discussed there and maybe take a few different kind of turns through that. So uh, thanks all for being here. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you. So I just thought we'd kick off. Now, this is a, apologies for the broad question to begin with, but I just wanted to get both of your takes actually on what we mean when we say decolonization, because I think obviously it maybe it sounds simplistic, but the British Empire feels very kind of a historical artifact almost. 70 years ago, we're talking, but decolonization is still very present today. So could you maybe tell us sort of what you understand the term to mean? So decolonization is a is one of those terms which has uh, a lot of meanings like democracy or justice or freedom. Mm-hmm. We yeah. have terms which can be interpreted in lots of ways. I think for our purposes, um, we would distinguish between colonialism, like formal control over other territories politically, and coloniality, which is the wider hierarchical structures which that control gave rise to. So in terms of the global economy or how countries are organised or how uh, you know we speak English as a kind of uh, global language and so on, there are structures which have continued from the formal periods of colonialism and imperialism. So decolonization, I think, to many people involved in this movement means not just of removing formal control of territories, although that's still an issue in a number of parts of the world, Mm. but um, trying to transform those more narrow hierarchical structures that the the broader kind of system gave rise to. Okay, thanks. Um, Tristan, do you have anything you want to add to that? I think that's a very good account. Uh, For an institution like the Victoria and Albert Museum, which has a very, very strong colonial prehistory, going back to the East India Company and the South Asia collections, on through some of our collections from sub-Saharan Africa, the colonial past is an integral part of the museum's history. And I think we should be transparent and open and clear about that. I think we should investigate it, unearth it, research it, challenge it. I suppose my problem with the specificity of the language decolonization is that you can't really take out the colonial from the V&A's history. And instead, well, what I think we should do is be really rigorous about the nature of that history, but then think, to Mira's point, about the coloniality of thinking. And if there are those systems of hierarchy and race still within the institution, well, that's something we need to challenge. I just wondered, Mira, could you give us a sense of how these debates are kind of playing out in the public sphere today? What are the are there particular flashpoints that we're oh, seeing? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, plenty. I think in terms yeah. of the public sphere, obviously people have latched on to fairly symbolic items. So the roads must fall protests, even though in both South Africa and in Oxford, they were animated by a much wider set of questions than simply the presence or not of a statue. Mm. Um, that's the, the symbolism that has been latched onto. Um, similarly, with thinking about decolonising the curriculum, a lot of newspapers focused on this meaning that we were binning Descartes and Plato and Kant, right. all of which was completely <laughs> untrue. But these symbols of what people understand to be the Western philosophical tradition became emblematic of um, the debate, which is a shame because I think in practice on the ground in universities and museums and other institutions, the conversation is a much richer conversation. It's about the relationship between symbols, content, distributive practices or income and materiality and questions of belonging and welcome and the ethics that kind of go around that. So I think it's actually quite a multidimensional question. I think that's right. Within the museum sphere, it's a question that of 
that often focuses on issues around restitution uh, of artefacts, uh, repatriation of artefacts, the provenance of collections, and how we think in the future about curatorial and museum relationships between the global north and the global south. There are obvious uh, trigger touch points around specific items, but I think in the future what will be more fruitful then is a much richer and deeper relationship between source communities which have had their items taken into Western European museums and those museums today. And part of that will be restitution, part of that will be loans, part of that will be knowledge sharing, uh, and that's the interesting area. Um, Mira, just to follow up, you touched upon decolonisation in universities as something quite easy for students to get engaged with. Um, Obviously, there is a clear infrastructure there for which, with, with a space within which that they can engage with these debates. How does this? How are other people outside of universities able to um, access these debates, and how are they able to maybe engage with ideas that might not be as easy to grasp? Yes, I mean, I think one of the issues that we're dealing with is a big knowledge gap between what people understand, let's say, history to be, and then they're puzzled as to why we would even ask these um, questions. So within universities. There's two ways in which space has been created. And I say this because I think there's a sort of question about how that translates to outside universities. So there are the informal mechanisms of protest which students themselves have created. So they've created movements, they've created campaigns and they've made manifestos and they've lobbied uh, teachers and vice chancellors and all the rest of it to take these things seriously. And that's actually interacted with a move from the government to make uh, the racialized inequalities in awarding degrees a much more um, central part of what universities are concerned with. So they also then have formal structures in departmental meetings, we have student reps, right? And they can talk about what the content of the programmes is and feed in that way. So universities have this internal democratic structure that allows for a level of deliberation on these uh, issues. One of the issues, I think, when we take it to the public sphere is that the democratic structure is a bit more diffuse and not everybody can access it in the same way. Mm. So Twitter, for all of its many, many failings, has been a space in which people have tried to engage. But of course, trying to engage with what is a deep, complex conversation in little sound bites is incredibly reductive and, and not so helpful. It would be better if there were kind of bigger fora for better conversations about it. We've seen a few attempts in terms of TV debates. We've seen newspaper columns. I really like the programmes that David Olasoga made, for example, as uh, entry points into thinking about history from a different kind of point of view. Um, I think he's done that really well. But I think people do need to be heard and to really explore these issues in more depth. One of the maybe perceptions around decolonization movements is that they're partly to do with sort of raising uh, the voices of people from backgrounds who were colonised. But I just wanted to ask um, your take on, therefore, what the role of people from coloniser backgrounds should be. Is is the kind of optimal role in this process to be the passive listener or, or are there ways for people to engage more actively in this process, even if they're not actually from backgrounds that were necessarily negatively affected? I think it's about knowledge mm. uh, and understanding. Uh, I think one of our insights of recent years is to understand how in different ways the coloniser was as affected as the colonised mm. in terms of the imperial 
experience. Now, that doesn't mean in terms of the same levels of racism or political subjugation, but when you think of the popular culture, the material culture of Britain in the 20th century, you cannot divorce it from uh, from its global role. One of the first exhibitions I was in involved with as a member of parliament in Stoke-on-Trent was thinking about the ceramics industry and empire. Mm. Um, Not only the global trade flows of ceramics from North Staffordshire to the Caribbean to South Asia around the world, but also the influence of Orientalist, exotic, colonial designs on ceramic production. And so an appreciation of the imperial history, I think, just gives a perspective uh, on that, and I, I agree with colleagues that there isn't nearly enough of this um, in in the education curriculum as we approach a much more integrated uh, global world for citizens in the 21st century. It's an interesting question, and it's one which, um, let's say, allies kind of struggle with, or people who are um, racialized as white often struggle with. There's lots of good reasons for this. I think the key thing is to start by recognizing how and where power operates. I mean, one of the wonderful things about privilege is that you don't have to know that you have it. You just kind of pass through life and certain things don't happen to you and you'd never know about what didn't happen to you. And that's um, that's just, you know, the way it goes. Um, and I've certainly been the beneficiary of it as well as on the other end of it um, in my life. So making people aware of what the power relations are in a particular dynamic, I think, is critical. And also um, supporting campaigns, sometimes even when they're not your campaigns and you don't fully understand them is a, is an odd thing to ask. I mean, if we look at the campaigns, the feminist campaigns for women's rights, for example, it's important that those campaigns are not just by and about women, mm. however we understand that term, but that we are transforming the gender relations, right? So we can't un- we can't undo sexism or patriarchy if we don't also address masculinity. Similarly, we can't undo racism or those kind of um, colonial hierarchies if we don't also think about what is involved in whiteness. And that's a long historical process of cultural production and all the films and the you know, movies that we um, consume kind of regularly. So becoming self-aware about that, I think, is a first step. And then there's a number of other steps to do with listening, making space, but not only being silent or passive. I think that would be a mistake. I think understanding that this is our common issue Mm. and our collective problem Mm. um, is is critical. You both touched upon power structures and power dynamics. In the restitution and repatriation debate itself, what are the power dynamics there? Because obviously there is a sense that in saying that you will return items it's sometimes construed as benevolence. So how does that play out and how does that affect the conversation and dialogues that happen? I think that criticism is very fair. The notion that some cultural institutions in the West should decide uh, what should be returned in what order and how and how it should be presented is the wrong way to approach this. And so, for example, the Benin Dialogue Group, which is uh, a group of cultural institutions from Europe alongside representatives of government and culture in West Africa and Nigeria, where they are having a long and ongoing conversation about how they want this relationship to proceed in the future, based, as I understand it, on a much more equitable uh, framework than uh, traditional relationships were in the past. Similarly, ourselves, we're involved in conversations with the Ethiopian uh, government and the Ethiopian diaspora community, and we're certainly not 
saying to them, this is what we can offer you, you know, take it or leave it, uh, you know, how, how do you like the sound of it? We're, we're saying to them what, what can work for you within the constraints that we face. Um, and it's often a three-way dialogue today because you've got cultural institutions uh, in, in the West. You have civil society and or government in source communities in the global south. But you also have highly active and engaged diaspora communities moving between the global north and the global south with strong connections to these pasts. And so managing all of those uh, relationships in an equitable way is, it seems to me, a part of museum leadership today. And sometimes we'll get it right and sometimes we'll get it wrong. I just wanted to turn now to the idea of what governments can do, what the role of governments might be, as, as we're sort of in a policy institute here at Chatham House, actually a policy institute with quite a complicated history of engagement with empire um, in our early history. But regards to these kind of decolonization processes, what do you think the role is for, for sort of public policy? How, how can governments go about affecting this change? Or should they? Or is it more of a cultural phenomenon? So I might say two things. I think on the museum front, actually, we should look at changing the law because that's been cited repeatedly as a barrier to um, the full range of considerations and options that we might have when looking at um, objects. And that would allow us both to say in a fairly straightforward way, yes, this is your stuff. Mm. And we acquired it illegitimately. And what we're going to do is is restore it to you. And then, then the conditions and the relations and the arrangements can be put in place. On the education front, I don't think this is a sort of top-down thing that governments should do. I do think that governments should hold universities to account over their records on race discrimination, not just for students, but for staff, and to make it much more straightforward for uh, complaints to be heard and to be actually acknowledged. What we often get in universities is a sort of suppression or a hiding or a denial of what's going on, as in many other institutions. You see this in companies and charities and all the rest of it. So governments can hold institutions accountable. It's difficult, though, when government itself need, government itself needs to take leadership on anti-racism questions. And I think one of the great um, problems that has arisen recently is that anti-racism has seen to it has been portrayed as an attack on freedom of speech. Mm. And I think that's something we need to be very clear about um, in terms of going forward. That freedom of speech, when you're being racist is not freedom of speech because it creates very unequal conditions under which people can speak. And so I think getting that piece of the puzzle right is critical. I think from my perspective, it's a bit of special pleading for museums that we want to send more collections abroad to parts of the world where they can't pay for it. Mm. Um, and we are institutions who faced a 23% cut in public funding over the last 10 years. So our ability to send interesting collections to parts of South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia is almost impossible because we can't have the insurance costs. We can't, you know, support those institutions who can't afford to take it to help them put the artefacts up, to help them insure it, to have the collection. So I think, I think money to share 
collections globally from British museums would be really, really valuable. And then I think also what, what I think ultimately the French will start doing, I think the French will start building museums in sub-Saharan Africa because they're finding it very, very difficult, even with the, the uh, hopes for the law change, actually to return items. And I think what they'll do is, in a sense, return items to French soil in various parts of the world. And what I'd like to see is support from government to help us you know, fund galleries and exhibition spaces in Nigeria, in uh, parts of South Asia, which means that we can lend incredibly delicate items effectively so that much bigger audiences, often from whose communities these items came, that they can be seen for free uh, and for open. And at the moment, even with the best will in the world, trustees are under a legal responsibility knowing that their items under their control would in some situations be in danger. And I think we need to work together uh, to see how we can alleviate that. I just wanted to throw in there, I think we could also be much more imaginative about the possibilities of digitising access to some of these resources. Mm, And of course, this is not the same as having the object in front of you. But there's quite a lot that can be done. And we've had this conversation about libraries and open access to, um, uh, you know, academic knowledge. I think we should also be having these conversations about museums. I mean, it doesn't seem beyond the world of possibility that global museums, a large philanthropic kind of fund could be set up precisely to Uh, digitise and store information about these objects centrally to organise them, to make them searchable. And that would literally be accessible to anybody in the world with an internet connection, one would hope. Of course, there'd be lots of interesting politics about how how it happened. But certainly as teaching and learning resources, I think the physical kind of travelling needed to go to museums, we should be thinking much more virtually. Yeah, so you mentioned Macron's commitment to um, return certain artefacts to African countries. How meaningful are these commitments? I mean, the initial speech that he made was over two years ago. And since then, very few items have actually been lent to various institutions in other countries. And I think one of them was even already there. So it wasn't even a loan. So what does this actually look like? The flow of it was a very powerful speech by Macron. Then the commission of a report, which had very radical suggestions uh, at the end of it, which was not fully embraced by the French museological community, nor parliamentarians who haven't passed a law to allow the return of artefacts. So he he is facing some political challenges there. And I think without, without sort of, because I'm a great... <laughs> I'm a big Macron fan. Um, uh, I I think his instincts are are right. Um, But I think the challenge is is if you seek to solve these problems politically, and this sounds like kind of, you know, vested interest and all the rest of it. But one of the problems with the report was the attempt to solve the wrongs of colonialism through a contemporary collections policy. And actually, you see the greatest work coming through conversations and relationships and partnerships between institutions rather than necessarily at diplomatic political level and focusing through collections and objects. And over time, that will probably yield more. Um, I'd just like to end with what may be an impossible question. Obviously, as we've been discussing here, the sort of effects of empire and colonialism are still absolutely with us today and shape so many different facets of um, British society, but also Western society more generally. But my question really is around whether 
decolonization movements have a bit of a communications problem with this because I think so many of these sort of debates are bound up with ideas of national identity and I wonder whether there's a danger that people feel almost attacked if if people are saying like we should be talking more about the the problems that we created as absolutely rightly we should be but I do think that there are constituents who do feel that that's a kind of attack on their national heritage and their idea of what it is to be British and these sorts of things. So my my question is really how do we kind of transcend that anxiety and use decolonisation to kind of build a positive idea of Britishness? It's very difficult as the leader of a national institution, partly funded by taxpayers, to say that my role at my institution is, build, is to build a progressive idea of Britishness mm. based upon a certain reading of history. And I don't think that is the role of the institution. Mm, sure. I think we should be a space for the multiplicity of voices and we're going to be more kind of liberal in some of this thinking than maybe other parts. But it was interesting and noteworthy when we put on the display around the Ethiopian objects from Magdala, I certainly had correspondence from people saying, why are you digging up this past? Uh, you will have to send everything back. Why are you attacking the British army? Why? And these are UK citizens and taxpayers who fund the institution. Uh, and so I am responsible to them as much as I am responsible uh, to those who wish to see a much more racially balanced understanding uh, of the collections. Mm. But I think we do need to show leadership in this field, which is about being open and transparent about the collections uh, and, and then le leaving it up to individuals uh, to have their understanding. Museums are not neutral. We, you know, we make decisions uh, every day, but we should be spaces where we can open up a conversation, curate the conversation through the material culture without, as it were, a prescriptive end. So I think people of colour in Britain are also British taxpayers and Absolutely. citizens, right? And so, yes, there are voices that say you're denigrating Britain and there are other voices that are saying this is Britain, right? This is real British history. This is real uh, British belonging. And I think one of the things that we've seen with the Windrush um, scandal is not so much that this was a mistreatment of immigrants, but these people were British. They were British subjects. They came to Britain under the British yeah. system of law and all the Absolutely. rest of it. And so there's a question about what is really Britishness. And I think one of the unfortunate um, undercurrents about discussions about national identity is that only white Britishness is authentic Britishness. And I, th I think that's something that really needs to be challenged. Yes, there are very, lots of different ideas about what Britishness is. And I think we're probably living in an age where the idea of what Britishness is has become more polarised than it was maybe 20 years ago when people bought into a sort of liberal, humanitarian, Blairist kind of um, Britain um, or British vision, or at least appeared to. So I think there is that question. I would agree very much with Tristram about um, the need for the museum community to show leadership. In terms of the communication issues, I found these quite difficult. I mean, I, I regularly communicate with people on, on these things and um, I do try to uh, get the message across in as positive a way as I can because I right. do think mm -hmm. this is a real opportunity for us to be better, right? But I do think that this conversation in particular has been seized upon and manipulated by certain corners of the press and certain groups with agendas as evidence of some kind of elimination of 
British heritage or elimination of British national identity, rather than simply an attempt to kind of confront the past and what obligations or issues might flow from it. And I found that in um, very well-established media as well as more more fringe media as well. So the view that I've personally taken in doing my work is to try to communicate with people who are not invested in that specific political agenda. Those people, I think, don't want to have that conversation. I was asked on a prominent um, uh, current affairs programme to discuss this issue when it blew up uh, around SOAS, which is my own institution. And uh, the producer interviewed me. And even though it was about my institution, a campaign that I was working on and that I was in the front line of, um, they went with a different uh, speaker because they thought they would be more provocative and say more provocative things. And I was actually told on the phone that I was too moderate to appear on the thing. So with those experiences, I've decided to try and work with communities that I think are open to, but maybe, you know, engaged more sceptically and less sceptically, but at least in principle open to it. I do think there is a a sort of hardcore, which is very vocal, which just wants to shut it down and or use it as a mobilising point of rhetoric for a sort of wider culture war, if you like. I think we'll leave it there. But thank you very much for sharing those views today, uh, Tristram Nira. Thanks thank for joining you. Us. Thank you very much. I'm here to speak to Dr. Hui Che, also known as Cherry, who is our senior research fellow on China um, at the Asia Pacific Programme. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Agnes, for having me. So we're here to talk about. China in the light of coronavirus. A moment of national grave. Yes, absolutely. And we thought it'd be interesting to look at, rather than looking at the global health element, looking at the sort of geopolitical impact and the impact on China. So um, just to start, the thing that struck me most as a non-expert was how open China seemed to be from the get-go about what was going on or trying to be you know is that a sign compared to say bird flu in the past that it it does think of itself more as a global player i think there are many elements in this question whether china's open or closed or try to cover up i think firstly this government beijing is now competing with our virus which nobody knows how to dealt with it and nobody really have like the exact um silver bullet to prove it can be cured. So they're competing with something they don't know. Mm. So the best they can do is just to show these are all the virus and please help us. Mm. So that's one element why they prefer to be open. But there's also argument that the Chinese government covered up initially. I think part of the reason is also because this virus takes much longer to be discovered, to be diagnosed. And yeah. that's mean- perhaps you see the different... Speed in terms of hike of the numbers. Also, when I come to the international element, we're talking about China by become wish to become a leading force on the global governance. So obviously, judging how good they are as being a leading force of global governance, and China will have to demonstrate it has an effective way of curb this global epidemic. And do you think it's being successful so far? I think it's a mixed result. Yeah. Um, so judging by the numbers we have received up until today, most of the cases outside the epicenter of the virus, Hubei province, 
most of the numbers are continuously in decline in the last 10 days. But I think the situation in Hubei still remains very severe. Mm. So nobody can really predict when the turning point of this outbreak will happen. So it may drag us long for another month or so. It may just stop suddenly in February. Nobody knows. Yeah, and because like you say, it's, it's a long incubation period, isn't it? I mean, it's what, 28 days or something. So Standard is between three to seven days. Right, and okay. then there are certain occasions were extended into 21 days or 28 days. So no one can really tell the numbers. Yeah, and nobody really knows what we're dealing with, I suppose, as well. But how is, how is China dealing with it internally? I mean, because... I wanted to ask you about one thinks of China as sort of a monolithic state, but obviously it's lots of different provinces. So how much control like, does each province have? Um, and are, are different provinces dealing with this differently? Is there a sort of a uniform response within the government? Initial, the initial reticence from the Wuhan local government, uh, obviously it caused a major repercussion of the country. Um, so delay in responding and therefore expand the virus and expand numbers of victims. So that proved to be failed in terms of dealing with the crisis. Mm-hmm. Now, secondly, I think only when Xi Jinping started to, the Chinese president, take into this matter very seriously and then the rest of the country it followed. So a direct order from central government ask all 33 provinces of China and try to curb the disease. Mm-hmm. So that really come... Um, a change in tones and coverage, increasing coverage in state media. Um, so that's the phase one. Now, phase two, when it comes to the m- subjects, um, many provinces realize each province has its own individual medical mechanism, mm-hmm. public health system in terms of dealing with the outbreak. So it's a sense of national mobilization, by the way, how they dealt with this outbreak. I think until we entirely finish this entire crisis, we cannot really judge how effective this mechanism it is. Mm. Because the question arise at a time when, on the one hand, presidency tried to emphasize the recentralization of the party. Therefore, central government would play a much bigger role in dictate national governance, including public health. So this gives the provincial governors and also local government very little incentive to providing any additional inputs mm-hmm. because they're a little bit afraid of they might have done something wrong. So the best they can do is do little, do as little as they can and just waiting the orders from the very top. And therefore, you have that impression that China, you know, the big, the, the central leaders dictate what's happening in the country. But on the other hand, there's also a bottom-up approach because for years... There has been a division between central government vis-a-vis the provincial governments of China when they come to economic planning, when they come to different industrial policies, mm-hmm. and so as to public health as well. So given now, because of that centralization, the local government felt they're not really responsible to providing any different information and different data to be deviated from the central government, because otherwise it would have to show they do not respect the loyalty to the party. So there's, I think there's a bit paradox between the central government vis-a-vis provincial government, how they dealt with things like um, public health crisis or how they dealt with the economy mm. after this crisis. I mean, we, we hear a lot about um, how much investment China is putting into infrastructure and things like that. How much investment has there been in, pu- in public health? What's the public health sort of system like? Is it, is it quite resilient? 
I think the one of the point lessons we have learned from this coronavirus outbreak is, for years, for the last forty years, and China has regenerated its economy, creating that famous story of the China's economic miracle by building railways, bridges, and airports.、Mm. So you have solid infrastructure. But whereas on the other hand, I think even after seventeen years ago, after the SARS crisis. The country still have not really learned. They should have built a very solid and resilient public health mechanism to dealt with emergency and crisis like this. I think we largely failed, right, in the last few last seventeen years, and we are now learning another hard lesson. So I'm hoping by the time when China issue another five years plan, we should have seen more. Um, increases in terms of public expenditure, in terms of public health,、yeah. in terms of training sufficient medical staff to be able to deal with public health crises like this. And next year is a bit of a big year for China, isn't it? Moving on, you know, to the economy, and how do you think this might impact China's economy going forward? I would consider this coronavirus outbreak is perhaps the most tremendous test for President Xi Jinping since he came to power. The reasons I explained earlier is about public health crisis, is about a sense of public anger and distrust, and it's also about China's international reputation. But more importantly, it caught at a time where China has gone through an initial stage of economic transition to transfer itself from export-oriented economy into consumption-led economy.、Mm-hmm. But given because of the virus, and it putting the entire economic activities into nearly a standstill, so most of the consumption-led sectors like entertaining industry, tourism industry, transportation, are really put on the ground.、Hmm. They are not be able to take it off. I mean, I'm just considering Lunar New Year period of China is the Chinese New Year where people traveling around the country the most, and it's a time of all the sectors making money.、Hmm. So. They're in a very difficult situation. Now, secondly, even though China has gone through this sense of economic transition, but nevertheless, it still remains as an export-oriented economy, and therefore, China does need a large number of migrant workers to sitting on assembly lines and making things.、Mm-hmm. And the most difficult issue, the most pressing issue for many of those manufacturers, is they're unable to find migrant workers who will be able to. To do the job, right? So that potentially would disrupt the, the so-called global supply chains in many sectors. And is that as a direct result of the coronavirus? It is a direct result of coronavirus, but also this impacts on the trade war、yeah. because the fog of trade war still not go away yet, as such.、Mm-hmm. So China still have to comply with a phase one trade deal. So that's、yeah. another challenge, and China will have to surmount at the end of the day. But I think overall, over longer term. Once the global supply chain been disrupted, and if certain businesses, certain foreign businesses, decided to shifting the supply chain outside China,、mm. and it's very hard for them to return, so this potentially posing another economic challenge for China. You mentioned public anger and distrust. It's very difficult in the West, I think, often to get a to get a sense of what people really are, you know are feeling. Are people angry? Yes, I think people are generally angry this time because of the delay of the responses.、Right. Secondly, it's also because 
They want to know what is happening. They want to have the best possible way of curing the disease,、mm. rather than confine themselves at home. So th- there's a sense of public anger. So that's why the central government sacked the governors of Hubei, 13th of February,、mm-hmm. as a, a response to public anger, and also plus this doctor who was the initial whistleblower of the coronavirus and pa- sadly passed away,、mm. and therefore inside China. A population felt they have been betrayed、mm-hmm. by the government. So my argument in here is, we're not. If we are now talking about the social contract between the governor and those who are being governed,、mm. and I think perhaps the Chinese Communist Party will have to rethink、um, its social contract, whether it's only about by providing lovely GDP double-digit growth number. Or more than about providing a quality of living standard for its own population.、Mm. So I think this now is the key question. Certainly, the quality, the standard of living because of this virus, has been hugely disrupted. Really, and what, how do you think people have felt that, like on the ground on a day-to-day basis? You know, is it is it just being stuck in in their homes, or you know, not being able to like is food being moved around? You know, are, are people able to access? How is it disrupting everyday life? I think it depends where you are. Yeah. So you have certain cities and certain provinces which are economically far more advanced. Yeah. So you would have community workers come to the residential compounds to deliver your essential food, and you can do purchase through WeChat platform through、mm-hmm. your phone, and make payment and be able to acquire your food. But you also have certain places where you're not able to access those. So I think it, because it's such a vast country, so each individual province, the treatment is very different.、Mm-hmm. And economically, how do you think this is going to impact China, sort of on the on the global stage? Economically, I think it's rather worrying.、Mm-hmm. I mean, I already seen some news that talk, the talk of S and P five hundred. Perhaps would downgrade China's growth this year, so that will be a potential a huge blow for the Chinese economy. A, a slight recession has already been predicted, hasn't it? I think I would call this as a readjustment. A readjustment.、Okay. Yeah, a readjustment. It's very, very political, very <laughs> political term. But the forecast hasn't just been growth, continuing growth. No. So no. if that's being readjusted from that, it has been readjusted, and also we don't know exactly what number it is. And as of the news today,、um, the Chinese leadership is now under discussion of delay the opening of National Parliament Congress, the time where every year the most senior leadership gathered and tried to work out the economic plan and predicting the GDP growth for the following year, for the com- for the incoming year. So obviously, this process has not been delayed. It's an indication that the central government has not yet been able to make a full calculation. On what would be the GDP growth would looks like for this year? To be fair, as you said earlier, nobody knows what what anyone's dealing with. You know, it's very difficult to predict timescales and things like that. But do you think, from an international perspective, do you think China has played its openness quite well? Do you think it's played it quite well by being as open as it has? I think China. What China has learned is. Because seventeen years ago, in terms of us, China was not the second largest economy in the world.、Yeah. It's less interconnected with the rest of the world. 
And nowadays, China is being exposed mm. by default by being the second largest economy in the world. So every single move and every single action are being carefully observed yeah. by the rest of the world. So there's nothing they can afford to hide. And do you think, well, with celebrations coming up next year, do you think there is a chance that the government will crack down a bit harder or will potentially use some tactics that might seem a bit harsh or dated? I think whether to crack down or not crack down, that's indeed in the mindset of the Mm. Chinese leadership. But at the end of the day, I have to say, for this government, it has to be observed by its own population. If its own population are not happy about how they're dealing with the crisis, then they will perhaps receive a rather uncomfortable result. So... Even by being not being a country, a government with a multi-party election, they're not free from examination and scrutiny, and often those examination and scrutiny are deeply uncomfortable for its own leadership. I can imagine. And, and you are being compared on an international stage to how other countries are dealing with, obviously not on the same scale, but you know there have been cases in Europe and, and in, other, in other parts of Asia, so there's a clear, a clear comparison, isn't there? Yes, there's a clear comparison. But then on the other hand, I think China has taken an extreme measure. And only that sense of extreme measure, that sense of national mobilization, only a centralized government of China can do this. But I could not imagine in many African countries to be able to contain disease in this manner. Yeah. So final question, if that's okay. What, what role is civil society having in, if any, in trying to deal with the crisis? Well, I would argue actually this time, the civil society play a rather active role in terms of providing medical assistance, medical equipment assistance. Like, for example, many overseas community in the UK, in the beginning of this outbreak, and they all purchased the face mask across the UK. So you will not be able to find the face marks in the UK nowadays. Blame the Chinese <laughs> and then send it back to the country because they felt it's a time of a national crisis. They should help the country. So in a way, there are some positive energies being shared by many ordinary Chinese people. You have migrant workers collect all its own lifetime saving and send it to hospitals in Wuhan and left a message saying, that's all I have, but I give it to you because you're going to save the life of millions. So you have all those very touching stories. Oh my God, that's stories. so touching. Yeah. You have many of those touching stories on the one hand. But I think on the other hand, this makes the Chinese government also have to rethink the role of the NGO. Because for years, the role of NGO in China has been curbed, has been controlled. And But in a, time, a crisis time like this, they could provide a sufficient alternative to make up those gaps were left by the government efforts. So even though I, in the beginning of the session, I argued it's a time of national grief, but I think we should also consider this as a moment of a national awakening to learn whatever the mistakes we have made in the past and to make the country stronger. Well, that's a positive note to end on. Thank you so much. Very interesting. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
Great. Well, before we end this episode of Undercurrents, I just thought we should have a conversation about a new podcast series that is coming out um, from Chatham House. And I'm joined in the media studio by two colleagues from the events team. I have with me Ludovine Rebe. Nearly. Très bien. Very good. Thank Merci you. Merci beaucoup. And Amrit Swali. Um, <laughs> welcome so both. Much. So the podcast is Independent Thinking. Someone tell me what that is. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, we run events every single week uh, in our team, which is very exciting. We get to work with some really interesting speakers and in-house researchers on all of the topics that Chatham House touches on, as well as our gaps. So we have we cover all of the geographical areas and research themes, including cyber and international security and global health and mm-hmm. law and global economy and finance. So um, it's a lot of different areas for us to try to master and develop interesting content on Mm -hmm. we thought that it could be interesting to share it as a podcast as well so every week myself and Amrit are going to select our favorite on the record event and package it for you and share it and hopefully you enjoy it as much as we enjoy it live in person we do what is it hundreds of events a year We do hundreds of events, yeah. Uh, So it's not just our team. All of the different research departments also will have events that they run, often more directly associated with projects that they're working on, but not Mm -hmm. necessarily. And then what our team does is our public events that are, again, as I mentioned, on the record. And you might be able to, you can find them on the website often as well. We live stream a number of them. And the audience is our membership audience, as well as other groups that we bring in, like guests of the speakers, or sometimes we'll have groups of students who will come in, or uh, we mix it up a little bit. And we also run, kind of as an aside, but you won't be hearing them on the podcast, a number of private kind of breakfasts and dinners and other events to bring different stakeholders together to talk about public policy issues. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. You've both been working at Chatham House long enough. What's been your favourite event that you've done? Amrit, go. I work with the comms team on a series of events called the Historian Series, which we are running in the run-up to our centenary year, which is this year. One of the first ones that I worked on with comms was on the historical origins and context of Brexit, which was probably my favourite event to organise and run. And Ludovine? Uh, This is a lot less original. I think sometimes the real star quality events so the week that I started I was so shocked it was we in the same kind of a span of seven days we had Benjamin Netanyahu uh, Juan Manuel Santos who was president of Colombia at the time and John Kerry all speaking I was like no it's not every week like that I was like oh my god this is incredible but a lot Uh, of weeks a lot of weeks you know it's not actually that shocking or that unusual and we had last year there was two in particular that were really special So we did Theresa May's last public speech as prime minister and they reached out to us about it, which is really exciting to get that phone call and that opportunity. And we're like, absolutely, we can facilitate that. We can make it happen. So that was special as well as every year we have the Chatham House Prize, which is an event where Chatham House nominates a number of individuals who've had a significant contribution to international affairs in the last year. And then our membership votes on it. And this year, David Attenborough came. And we always, as we are the Royal Institute of International Affairs, a royal, someone from the royal family will award the Chatham House Prize to that person. And we had the the top royal come and it was the Queen. So that was an exciting event as well. And I think there's a good relationship between the Queen and David Attenborough. So that was exciting to see. She made a little joke on stage, which was really cute too. About being old. About being old. About both of them being old and still contributing. (laughs) (laughs) As they do. 
and you can watch that on the website still. So, independent thinking, Amrit, how do people find this? You can find it on all good podcast apps. Um, so on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you like. It's also on our website, so you can also find it there. Happy days, happy days. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Undercurrents listeners, um, I'm usually quite protective of you. I don't like to share you. I'm very grateful that you continue to listen to Undercurrents, but I would also highly recommend this epic series, which is going to be really fun. Absolutely. We want to take you down is our main <laughs> our main goal here. <laughs> Internal competition is a wonderful thing. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thanks and, so much, uh, Ben. See you soon. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Well, I for one found that fascinating. Agnes, good, good. Great interview. Yeah, and we hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks we uh, with more interviews. Hopefully some cheerier topics as well. You know, we've got some great people coming up. Hopefully we won't be talking about coronavirus. What do you think? Probably. Yeah. Probably still going to go. I mean, it's be still going to be in the news cycle, isn't it? But I feel like... I hope, I hope it's sort of... I mean, there's still those people on that ship. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, can you Slowly imagine being stuck, infected? Stuck yeah. on a like, cruise ship. Goodness. You um, can, yeah. Okay. But yes. And uh, if you're missing undercurrents in the intervening two weeks, then have a listen to our to our new series that we discussed, Independent Thinking, uh, which is our events podcast, and The Climate Briefing, which will tell you everything you need to know about climate action in 2020. And uh, yeah, follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. So I suppose it only leaves to be said. I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimpson, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.